Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. This is what it says. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Usually when we say, uh, this is the word of God, thanks be to God, we reply, amen. Amen? This was the word of God, and not any other word. Um, we were, uh, we're now in our fourth week of um, diving through the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, uh, we've talked about the weapons of the church. And I wonder how many of you remember. Uh, we've talked about uh, the weapons of the church, including our prayer of the church, the power of the church, the fellowship of the church, which was preached to sojourn. And also, today we come today to the identity of the church. Um, the title is the identity of the church, but uh, the actual content of, of today is the suffering of the church. Now, I myself am getting sick and tired of sermons on suffering. I want to get past the COVID stage, and I want to talk about a brighter future, a brighter purpose, and a more resolve to get together and talk about joy. But I recognize in Scripture that suffering is a weapon in the hand of God, uh, that suffering is a weapon in the church that is um, actually meant to utilize and to empower the church for God's kingdom. And so as we process suffering and persecution in a biblical lens, I pray that your eyes would be opened to see how this applies to your life. So with that said, let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, please move in our midst that as the word of Jesus Christ is proclaimed amongst us today, that our ears would be perked and we would listen, that we would respond biblically, and that we would know how to apply this passage in our lives. Uh, Father, uh, regardless of how scatterbrained right now I am, or regardless of the condition of our hearts and minds that keep us from focusing upon the word, we know that miraculously every time the word is proclaimed, trusting in you, that there have been good fruit in our congregation. So Father, regardless of the state of our hearts and minds and how we approach today's sermon, Father, we pray that your word would be planted in our midst like a seed that will grow um, under your presence and your guidance and under the blood of Jesus Christ. May every person here rely upon the blood of Jesus Christ and his gospel and the good news to understand today's text. Father, we love you. We rely upon you. We ask for your help and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, today's text is what we call a, tin, a, a hinge passage, a hinge passage. A hinge passage is basically an introductory uh, statement into a new field, basically. And so as we look at Scripture, Acts chapter 1 through 7 had a pace going to it. 
And Acts chapter 8 changes that in a way that leads to a new dynamic uh, after this. And so what we're looking at is a crucial transition that changes how the church operated and is good for us to know. Now, what kind of hinge is this? It shows the connection between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And so while verses 1 through 4 uh, connect this chapter to what happened in the chapter before, chapter 7, uh, verses 5 through 8, the second half of today's sermon, shows the consequences of verse 1 and 4 and then connects the rest of the book of Acts. And so this is an important transition here. In other words, this small section determines the relationship between chapters 1 through 7 and then 8 all the way to the end of the book of Acts. So what's happening here? How does this connect the two? Uh, until chapter 7, we see the church, the weapons of the church, operating uh, in, in action, operating in real life. We see the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. We see prayer happening in the midst. We see the gospel message being proclaimed. We see fellowship happening in the midst of the church. And yes, while, of course, Jesus commanded his disciples to go in Jerusalem and go to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, However, the church was so gathered because every day, awesome things were happening in the church in Jerusalem. So there were miracles happening, new converts by the thousands. It was uh, probably one of the most exciting fields of mission history. Pastors would have paid uh, out of their teeth to join and, and, and see what this movement could have looked like in the past days. Fellowship was happening, miracles were happening, healing was happening, and the town was booming with the news of Jesus Christ. Who would want to leave this place? It was such an exciting time, and we would expect that we would see awesome uh, growth, especially happening from chapter 7 when Stephen, the deacon, is filled with the Holy Spirit and he proclaims the gospel. And so we would see, uh, apart from chapter 8, this hinge verse, that we will see just a steady growth of the kingdom of God through the church, and all would be well and done. However, something really beautiful, we expect it to happen, but actually something very tragic happens, and that's introduced in verse 1. It starts with this verse, Saul approved of his execution. So Stephen proclaims the gospel. He points out that all of the history of Israel was an indictment to their spiritual condition, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And after that happens, they stone him, basically covering their ears, saying, we don't want to listen to this anymore. And they kill Stephen, who proclaims the gospel. And Saul approved of this. And it says, on that very day, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so this growing movement that that all of church history and the Old Testament has prepared for. They've prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit and for the uh, establishment and the rise of the church. And so this was a day looked forward to by all the prophets, and yet it seems to be dying down at its birth. It seems that the hinge is meant to close the door on the Jesus movement. I don't know about you, but every time I see the word here, and they were scattered, they were all scattered. That word causes me to flinch, like grimace. And why is that? Nehemiah 1, verse 8, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. Nehemiah recalls the promise, the covenant promise between God and the Mosaic people, the Israelites. 
And he says this, Remember the words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the nations. In other words, back in Deuteronomy and Numbers in the Old Testament, being scattered across the nations was a sign of God's curse for a people who were unfaithful to him. So being scattered, in other words, is a punishment for not being faithful to God's word. And so every time I see this, I see a deja vu of Old Testament history. We see something called the Deuteronomic cycle repeat over and over again. God's people are disobedient, they're scattered, they're, they lose in uh, battles and plagues, and they're sent across the world, and then God has mercy and gathers them again. But now this same word is used in verse 1. The church was all scattered. The church was scattered. His spirit is poured out. The gospel is proclaimed. God's people devote themselves. I mean, what went wrong? What went wrong that God would scatter these people? Is the church unfaithful? Like, are we unfaithful right now? I mean, here's a more practical question. Like, when we are suffering and we see persecution and we are scattered, does it mean that we have also failed as a church to fulfill Jesus' mission? It's a pertinent question for today. Now, Let's look at the first picture. The word scatter in Nehemiah 1.8 is dia scorpizo. Uh, this basically means winnowing. This is a scattering that's often used to describe the process of throwing up hay. You separate grain from hay by throwing it up into the air, and the wind catches it, and the wind scatters the worthless hay, which will be burnt, and keeps the grain that is remaining. So dia scorpizo uh, in the Old Testament in Nehemiah 1.8 is translated as scattering to get rid of, scattering to punish and to destroy. But here in the book of Acts, chapter 8, we look at the Greek word behind this hinge passage, and the word uh, scatter here is actually diaspero, diaspero. And basically what that means is to scatter with the intent, let's look at the next picture, scatter with the intent of planting. So there is a destructive intent behind winnowing, but there is a reproductive intent behind scattering for the purpose of planting. And the word that's used here in the book of Acts is saying, God is planting his people, not as a response to the curse of being unfaithful to him, but as a response of God's intent to bless the world and keep Jesus' great commission in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So in other words, what we see here is not a punishment of the people of the church. What we see here is an advancement of the kingdom of God through scattering. Through scattering for the purpose of planting. So Luke could have used a general term, uh, dia scorpizo, with instructive and destructive intent. But he actually uses this word to say that this is not a scattering that doesn't come with design and purpose. No, these people are pinpointed into their location, planted to flourish by God's design and sovereignty. So these people were scattered with God's intent in mind to bless them and cause them to be a blessing to the world. The gospel is the seed. Christians are the seed carriers. And persecution is the wind. You get that? The gospel is a seed. It has the power of life in it. We are the carriers of that seed, and persecution is meant to scatter us so that the seed would be planted somewhere. Why is the scattering uh, through persecution so important to the Christian identity? It's part of who we are. 
And when you see, there was a great day, a great day of persecution against the church in Jerusalem. The word church is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia, ek, like out of, ecclesia, called. And so the church basically means as its basic identity, people who are called out. People who are called out. So what do I mean by this? The word basically refers to being set apart as holy for God's use and purposes. That's what the church is. So if you say, what is a church? The literal translation is the called out ones. Those who have been called out by God for a purpose that is holy. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy and dedicated to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. There is a calling out sense in the identity of the church. We're called out. Leviticus 20, 26, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations. I set you apart from the nations to be my own. So the relationship between persecution and holiness is there. In other words, being persecuted doesn't make you holy, but being persecuted confirms and shows you that you are different from the world. In other words, the world doesn't treat holy people differently, the same. They treat them completely uh, differently. If you're called out, if you belong to God, then you will be persecuted. And this is where we lose touch. Greatest concern every time that the missionary last week from China came, and every time we talk about persecution is, how do we connect it to Nova? How do we understand that if you are holy and set, up, set apart before God as a called out people, we will be persecuted? That's the greatest uh, chink in the mail right now. It's the greatest gap in the wall. And we're trying to bridge this right now. John 15, 18 through 19 promises this. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me, Jesus, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this world hates you. The world hates you. In other words, the church, being the holy and called out and hated people of God, they were meant to be, what, scattered by the world. They were meant to suffer in a world that they don't belong to. Distinction leads to persecution, and persecution leads to further distinction. And both are built into the identity of the church. You are called out. That means you're holy. That means the world hates you. And that means you will be more distinct. And a basic question that arises from this is where does your allegiance lie? Are you distinguishable from the world in its ways, practices, its motivations? Can you be distinguished in a way that God could sift you apart? Or are you so part of it that there is no distinction? Identity of the church, and built into it is suffering and persecution. It's the only way a church can spread the gospel. In other words, a monkey thrives where there are trees. Not that a tree is a monkey, right? But it's part of its identity somehow. And a fish flourishes in water. And so it is that you must take this as a truth that the Christian flourishes in persecution and hardship and suffering. 
when 43 students were mass kidnapped by police and inclusion with organized crime in Iguala, Mexico, 2014, uh, Mexican activists responded, but they were deterred, persecuted, and even killed. And, but they commented this, and this is a paradigm that summarizes all of today's text. They said this, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know that we were seeds. They tried to bury us, and bury us they did, but they didn't know that we would reproduce because we are seeds. The church is exactly that. The church is exactly that. We are seeds, and when we are scattered, we're meant to be scattered, we're meant to be buried, and it's in that context that we flourish. Jesus promises in John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says truly twice, it's a heavy statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. That is a promise we can't ignore. We cherry-pick the good promises of God, but we leave out promises that say persecution and suffering is connected to our identity as called out ones. And if you played hide-and-seek with the world, and you remain indistinctive from it, like you can't be characterized out of it, then is the seed within you. Jesus didn't want his followers to stay in Jerusalem. No matter how fast it was growing, no matter how happy it was, no matter how many powerful instances were occurring there, Jesus wanted to send them out. Oftentimes, when we think of a movement, uh, let's say KCPC is going to do consistent church plants, let's say once every two years. I mean, is that pace possible? Often think, we, have, we often think that we have to incubate it, that we have to grow it, to nurture it, to set up parameters and an expansion program, and then launch it into the world with good funding. But that's like a pregnant mom saying, I'm going to wait until this child has a PhD and an income and then I'll give birth. The nature of the church is a powerful seed that has within its DNA the life of Jesus Christ. It's meant to be scattered or it perishes. It's meant to be scattered or it perishes. A fetus too long in the womb dies. And a church that only gathers and doesn't know how to scatter a church that only knows how to hoard resources but doesn't know how to use it for the gospel's sake dies out of decay. Don't you want our church to survive? Amen? And don't you want our church not just to survive but to flourish in the midst of a world that is going against it? That's what we desire. Then the one missing element is persecution and suffering for the sake of the gospel. We'll talk about application at the end of this, but you have to understand, it's tied into your identity. If a lot of you are not being fruitful, if you keep on asking, Lord, I've been a Christian for 20 years, what am I doing with my life? What's missing is suffering for the sake of the gospel. That's what causes it to blossom. Notice verse 1 says this, everyone was scattered but the apostles, except the apostles. In other words, every trained person stayed in Jerusalem, but all the untrained people were being sent out to fulfill the Great Commission. In other words, the lay church movement was untrained, unordained. It was non-professional, everyday Christians. And so why is persecution a weapon of the church? Because 
It makes the church fulfill its mission and be fruitful through every day, man, woman, and children. Men, women, and children fulfill the mission because of the weapon of persecution. Not the pastors, not the theologians. Every single one of us is more highly trained than 10, 20 theologians put together in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the prophets, whoever they are. One Google search, and we know more about Scripture. And yet, why are we not as powerfully moving where 3,000 people trust in Christ in one day? Because of the lack of a persecutory setting that proves who you are, that shows the world what you're made of inside. When I look at you and I ask you, who really are you? Like, I can't distinguish you from the world. Your like, education is wonderful. Your IQ is wonderful. You have a stable job. But what are you doing with that that sets you apart from the world and its ways? Are you a seed? Verse 4 continues, Now those who were scattered went and about and preaching the word. The NASB translation says this, Therefore, Therefore, those who are scattered went about preaching the word. The Bible sees a cause and effect relationship between scattering and gospel proclamation. The scripture sees a direct cause and effect between Saul persecuting the church and killing Stephen, and then the gospel being preached and scattering to produce life. Imagine how frustrating it is for Saul. Like Saul, who's trying to crush the Christian movement, every time he tries to smother out the church, there's a new apostle, there's a new disciple, there's a new Christ follower, a new community, and a new church. In other words, he killed a Stephen, but now he's chasing a Philip. And he changed Samaria for the Lord. Philip changed Samaria for the Lord because of the push out of Jerusalem. It's scary to say this as a pastor because I don't want you to misinterpret this. I wish God pushed us out of our comfort zones here right now. We're too safe because we have a mass herd instinct right now. We feel protected. But it's not in this setting that the gospel flourishes. It's out there. Somewhere. Like God, I said this, God pinpointed exactly where you were to be planted because of his divine authority Remember, like, think of the faces around you right now in, in your workplaces, in your families. You were pinpointedly placed there and planted there for a purpose to cause life to flow into their lives. We have to scatter. And so a basic theme that all the pastors are sharing in the EC team ministry is gather and scatter. Like, it's like a heart a heartbeat. Uh, the blood gathers to the heart to receive oxygen, but once it has oxygen, imagine all the blood stayed here. Your fingers would, 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 would you know, I don't know, you'd die first and then you'd start to decay. So we gather, the heart pumps blood out, and the oxygen must go to the fingers and the, ha like the hands and the feet. And the church we've gathered here, we receive so many nutrients, so many supportive networks and people and training. Like, are we using that outside so that the rest of the community can breathe to see Christ? This Philip, in verse 5, he went down to the city of Samaria carrying the oxygen of the gospel, and he proclaimed them to them the Christ. The Christ. 
And the crowds with one accord, one accord, one mind, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. I mean, this is awesome. Why is this awesome? Not because of the signs and wonders. For the first time, the gospel reached a people that Jews gathered in Jerusalem would never have reached out to. These were the Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered a people group, an ethnicity that was, according to Harry Potter language, mudbloods. Like they were people who were originally Israelites, and then the Assyrians uh, took them captive, and their blood was mixed now, and they were seen as traitors, they were seen as uh, impure, they were seen as political traitors to the cause of Jerusalem. And so Israel, like, like Judeans and Samaritans, uh, were like water and oil. They couldn't mix. Like they called each other dogs. And so the gospel for the first time was carried by a Jewish, like a, 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 a Hellenistic Jew, Philip, a, a Jewish person who has a Greek name because he's crossing boundaries for the first time now. He goes into this area. Because what? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Check that happened in chapter 2. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Check that already happened. That's why the persecution happened. And now you're going to Judea. Check that already happened. Now, and Samaria being checked right now. And then to the ends of the earth ongoing to, through us today. And that would happen according to Jesus in one verse. And it's happening right now. It was part of God's design, in other words, for his called out ones, the church, God designed the church to be propelled by suffering and persecution to cross boundaries. You get that? This is not just a geographical location thing. This is crossing all uncomfortable boundaries. Another example, chapter 3, later, three chapters later, Acts 11, 19 through 21. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, but listen to this, speaking the word to no one except Jews. In other words, they thought that only the Jews were diaspora, like diaspora, diaspora basically means the scattered ones, right? The scattered ones. So they thought the Jews were the person who, people who were supposed to listen to this message. But then in the verse later, it says this, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, the Greek people as well, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord's out of people who didn't believe, who were not of the Jewish heritage, they believed in God. In other words, God's hand was with those who broke beyond boundaries to spread the gospel. And I ask you, when was the last time you experienced the hand of God with you? Probably wasn't with us unless we were breaking boundaries with the gospel message. Why don't we see God move today? Like out of our 30 years, 40 years of trusting in Christ and following every, him every day, why don't we see the hand of God physically moving amongst us right now? Because there are no boundaries that we are willing to cross. Now, these Samaritans used to have the same blood. They were northern Israel, which had been assimilated into Syria. But uh, Judea and Samaria are like 
South and North Korea. They're like considering each other as long-lost brothers. But now the gospel is going beyond the Jews to the Gentiles and the heathens. It was crossing not just a, a, a bloodline. It was crossing over into all ethnicities. It wasn't just crossing political borders. It was going over to new people groups. Persecution led to breakthrough, first across political borders and now ethnic borders. And what happens when the called-out people, Ecclesia, are planted through suffering in the world? Repeat after me. Breakthrough. When God's people with the correct identity are scattered by the wind of God, which is persecution, what happens is breakthrough through all people groups and all political affiliations, all cultural affiliations into all spheres of society. There are leftists who won't associate with right people here. There are second gens who won't associate with first gens here. There are people who vibe with gamers who won't associate with non-gamers. There are all sorts of cliques and divisions within the church. And when was the last time that you reached out for the sake of the gospel to cross over into an uncomfortable area? That is when the hand of God is with you to empower you. Beloved KCPC, is there any discomfort or alienation and separation from this, all of this, because of your allegiance to the gospel? Like, are you proud and not ashamed of the gospel too so much that you would cross over with it to people that might judge you or condemn you or kill you? You are meant to be a, ves- a vessel, a carrier of the message of the gospel to introduce people to to introduce Jesus to former enemies or former awkward acquaintances. God is using persecution and suffering for that purpose. So what happens at the end of all this? Let's say you cross over, you break through into new people groups and new boundaries. What happens after that? Verse 8, So there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. Suffering brings maximum joy the city, and to the church. Why would the gospel bring hope to a city, for example? When that city was aware of a situation that required the gospel. In other words, Samaria had always heard that they were second-class political traitors and dogs by the Israelites. And when they hear the gospel, when the gospel arrived, telling them that, that even though they were sinners, they were saved by the same God, the grace to enter into God's household and to be children, co-heirs with Christ himself, no matter what your ethnicity is, that caused them to rejoice. Because inherent within the persecution of that town and city was the understanding that they had nothing that would merit them joy. They needed the gospel. And do you need joy? Like, do you need the gospel? The Gospel Coalition recently published an article. I think it was republished over a long time. It basically said this. What do you do to evangelize a self-sufficient person? Like, what do you do to evangelize a person who says he's happy with his games on his phone? Who says that the stock market is good enough that he doesn't need Christ? 
Suffering also takes away from that so that your context, your life, your lifestyle makes you thirst for the gospel. I hope that makes sense to you. Like, so many of us don't come here as beggars and people thirsty of the gospel because our life is too okay. But here, the Samaritans, they were hearing that the gospel is extended to enemies of Christ even. Remember that this is a hinged chapter. It's a paradigm that defines what happens when the Holy Spirit filled, filled and praying gospel-centered fellowship, people are persecuted. What happens every time that there is persecution after chapter 7? There is a breakthrough and then freedom to worship God and joy everywhere that Christians go. Let's see this pattern. The Sanhedrin threatened the disciples. The fellowship in Jerusalem therefore becomes bolder. So the Sanhedrin beat the disciples and the word of God spread to Judea. Stephen is killed, so the word of God spreads to Samaria, then splits into Ethiopia. Saul, also called Paul, the killer of Stephen, gets converted, and God says about him to Ananias, I will show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Suffering connected to his new identity now as Paul. So now Paul is a seed, and he gets carried away by the wind of persecution. When Paul and Silas get beaten, then a prison fellowship starts happening in Philippi to the great joy of the prisoners. When Jews in Jerusalem plot to kill Paul, he gets transferred to Caesarea and gets the chance to preach the gospel before Festus and King Agrippa to the great joy of that city. On his way sailing to Rome, Paul gets shipwrecked, more persecution and suffering, yet the gospel is spread in the island that they're shipwrecked in, Malta. And on and on and on, we see the unstoppable and relentless spread of the gospel through this pattern, suffering, breakthrough, joy. Suffering, breakthrough, and joy. If you can't connect this to your life right now, I'm going to get angry. Suffering, breakthrough, joy. Why is there no joy? Because you haven't broken through with the gospel. And why haven't you, haven't you broken through? There was no suffering, no cost. Your, your discipleship was too cheap. To a world that asks for evidence of the gospel, to a world that's always asking for empirical evidence, sometimes the only way to prove it is by showing them what we lost for it and yet have joy. The extent of what you have lost in this world shows how much you value the world to come. Let's say that again. The extent, the extent of what you have lost for the gospel shows how much you value the world to come. I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed to talk about this, but I will talk for your edification. When people ask me, Pastor, why did you give up your legal career? I have two responses. One internal and one external. Externally, I say this. My lips say, and I practice this, to testify to the grace of God in Christ for me. That's what I say. Why did I leave the legal career? Because of that. But inside, I feel ashamed. Because I know a person who took his wife and his two kids to sub-Saharan Africa to preach the gospel to Muslims, and I don't know when they're going to die. But if you ask them, why did you go there? You left a life in New Jersey. Why did you go to sub-Saharan Africa? 
They're ashamed because they knew missionary couples who have already lost their lives in the service of God's kingdom. And day by day, we are proving, Christians are proving by what they lose and forsake in this world, how much they value the world and the kingdom to come. How much Christ is worth by offering all that I can, even if it takes the form of persecution and suffering. What suffering does is it loosens your grip on this world All that real estate, all those chances, all those privileges, all those economic opportunities, it makes you loosen your grip on that and strengthens your grip on the next world and makes you hungry. That's what suffering does. It's the greatest grace of God. Nova needs to hear this. Scripture doesn't lie. Whatever suffering you go through for the sake of the gospel, it is not loss. It is not considered loss. It's gain. God is keeping count of what you lose in the sake of gospel. God will not let you remain ashamed. On the day that you approach Christ, beaten and worn out because the world was unkind to you, Christ will look upon you and say, you indeed were not ashamed of me. I therefore am not ashamed of you. Welcome into my kingdom. Whatever suffering you go through for the sake of the gospel, because you are called out, distinct, unlovable by the world, because you're so different in how you process things with the transformed mind that sees a cross at the center of everything. When that happens, there will be fruit and great joy. There will be fruit and great joy. This is not a pastor promising you. This is a pastor looking at God's word trying to make the best common sense of it and seeing this pattern over and over plastered throughout the book of Acts, which is supposed to be a paradigm for the church. If you suffer, God will use it to proclaim his name. Your your suffering is not in vain. Now, I want to differentiate between suffering that you inflict upon yourself and suffering that we go through because we pursue Christ. In other words, the suffering that we went through because we suddenly, you know, lose some stock options or we get fired. It has nothing to do with your love for Christ, but it has everything to do with how you were seeking a higher position, more self-interest. That is not the suffering we're talking about. We're talking about the 20 to 30 minutes that you spent coming to church today to hear God's word. It's not profound, but it's categorized. There are ways to suffer in a way that shows your thirst for Christ and to know him and to spread him. And there are sufferings that has nothing to do with that, that comes as a consequence of living in a broken world. And I challenge all of you to transfer the suffering, You're you're going to suffer anyway. All that suffering, I want you to transfer that into a new category. May your suffering now be because of a planting, scattering purpose. Stop suffering for the world. It does not love you. Like, when are you going to, like, stop living with two feet planted in different worlds, opposite worlds? You're going to suffer anyway. Suffer for a better reason. Suffer 
in the eyes of someone who's keeping count. Suffer in front of a person who will turn that into grace and mercy and justice. Not just in a random chaotic world. This is why suffering is grace. Suffering really is grace. Amen? Suffering for the gospel really is grace. I'll tell you why. The West, the Western church, thought throughout church history, they looked at the number of Christians in China. At one point, it was 800,000 people around that number. And then the great cultural revolution happened and great persecution happened. Uh, They erased street names, uh, anything that reminded them of Western imperialism. They had student leaders uh, with red badges around their arms. They're called the red, you know, students. They went around lynching and killing professors who taught Western history, anything that smelled Western. Christians especially, they were the most hated. And they did everything by their book, the small red book. And everyone in the West was worried that the church would be snuffed out. They went underground. And to this day, they're still underground. But when the doors opened to China again, remember, they went underground without training, no seminary degree, no money, no financial or political support from America. They went underground, and those 800,000 people came out as 50 to 100 million people. Right after the great cultural revolution, untrained, unprepared, Frightful Christians who just happened to be persecuted and took their faith seriously reproduced into a hundred million strong. Right now, China's still under like 3%, 4% Christianity, but by sheer numbers, they are the greatest Christian force in the world. We were always wondering how this was possible. How does suffering so clearly lead to revival? So clearly and undeniably, there was a Korean pastor who went to China in 2018. He was invited to speak at a gathering of underground church leaders. And he prepared four sessions. Each session was two hours long because he heard that the Chinese leaders could, could sit for two hours long just listening to the word and then worship for four more hours. So he prepared that, but he severely underestimated what would happen. He went there and then he preached all throughout, all four of his sermons on one day. Eight hours of preaching with a break in the middle and four hours of prayer and praise surrounding that. He did ministry throughout the whole day. And so the the Chinese leaders were like, can you teach us more? Can you share the word of God more? Like, we want more. We want more. And the second day, he was running out of material, so he started talking about anecdotes. He was, you know, trying to tell funny stories about, uh, you know, what his life looked like and testimonies. And the church leaders were like, no, we're not interested. Like, we risked our lives to get here. And now when we return, five or six people who are shaking in fear will rely upon how you explain the scriptures to us so that we can encourage them, don't give us funny stories. Don't give us anecdotes. Explain the word of God so that we can stay faithful. That's why. No wonder. That's why they flourished. They saw nothing else but the gospel as core to their lives. The communism and the world had so stripped them of their desire for any kind of worldly success that the gospel was the only way into the next life and to flourish in the next life. 
The blessing for the Chinese church was the suffering that stripped them from all dreams of having a Western life. That was their blessing that caused them to hold on to the gospel, and when they received the gospel, they had great joy. But in, in the Western church, we try to fry the gospel, we try to deep fry it, we try to, uh, you know, uh, like prepare it in all sorts of ways to make it palatable. And yet, even when the gospel is proclaimed, we enjoy less than, you know, when we receive our tax returns. The world has been too friendly to us. And we have lost our savage and wild taste for the blood of Christ. Isn't that why we gather and scatter? To know of the sufficiency of the blood of Jesus Christ. To save and to change and to revolutionize the world. Isn't that why we gather and scatter? My greatest fear of KCPC is that we are too gathered and too comfortable. When you appear before God, you will not approach on a church basis. God won't say, okay, KCPC, step up on the last day. He won't say, okay, uh, Annandale Small Group, can you step up? He will call you by name. He'll ask you, ask you to give an account of how you are not ashamed of the gospel in the midst of a hostile world. And God will call you out by name. And you will stand before him, accounting for your life. And while there must be mercy and grace in this sermon, I don't know how to weave it in yet. We have to let the full impact of a suffering list life Marinate our hearts for a second. Like if there's going to be pain, let it be a good pain that causes you to repent and turn to Christ. How do we apply today's sermon? If those of you who have no suffering in your life because there's nothing distinct from the world and the gospel means nothing to you, there must be repentance. Lay down the things of the world and hold on to the pearls of great value that Christ gives. If any of you are suffering, Evaluate, what am I suffering for? What is the cause? What is the purpose? Is it for the gospel? If it is, let there be great joy. God is keeping count. He will not waste it. And if you are suffering for the wrong reasons, transfer it. But finally, be assured. Your suffering for the gospel means so much to God. He will translate that into everlasting value. How do we know that? Gracie, can you come up? We're going to conclude with this. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, he was buried somewhere. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He had died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. The first seed that was planted for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, there's a turn, there's a sequence. Christ, the first fruit, first. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Our lives, our deaths, our suffering, everything that we lose is predicated upon the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. If he rose then so will we, and so will there be a great transition in all of our suffering into glory. Please, please suffer for the sake of the gospel. 
It's going to happen anyway. I promise you, it's going to happen anyway. But please suffer for the right reasons. That is your identity. If you are called out, if you are held precious by Christ, this world will feel so alien. It won't feel comfortable. Like every time you go to a coffee shop to sit down and you look at posters, you look at magazines, you talk to the people, the ideas of the world need to be bothering your soul because it is not of God. And you must respond. Christ came. He died for a sinner like me so that all things in the world would be rejuvenated unto his image. And it is for that purpose I live and if that means suffering right now because we are so incompatible. Let it be. And may Christ vindicate that on the last day. Suffering is the weapon of the church. It makes you serious about the gospel. It makes you so hungry for the word of God and nothing else. TikTok, <laughs> the, the fun that Instagram brings, melts away. When you see what this world is capable of doing to you. And as you, you see the power of the gospel working itself out in a world that is hostile. Please don't be distracted by things that offer you temporary pleasure like a band-aid. It will not satisfy your identity. Christ called you out. Amen? Christ called you out. And that is enough for this life. And it will mean everything and the next life. Take this with faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Please use our suffering for your glory. If we are unable to identify why we're suffering, help us be calibrated unto gospel suffering. May it be because we love Jesus more than we love the world. And if there is no suffering in its life because we have aligned ourselves and pledged allegiance to a world that has nothing to do with you. Father, let our blood ashes be sprinkled over our heads and let the garments of our heart be ripped away in repentance. For we confess that only you are worthy, Father. Let that be a confession that arises in repentance among those who are aliens to any form of suffering. And for those who are crushed by suffering, Uplift their heads, Father. Help them look to a Christ that has suffered for them and with them. And may they be comforted by nothing else than the suffering Christ himself. May the gospel alone satisfy them. That all the riches of the world would be a laughingstock when it comes to comforting our hearts. And may Jesus, you alone, receive all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Can we rise and respond and worship?